Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Dr. Matthew B. Courtney, who is a policy advisor in Kentucky. He shares on educational research and data use, and most importantly, through his work, he helps kids. Matthew Courtney, who are you? Good morning. First and foremost, an educator. Educator loves to use research and data to solve pesky problems of practice so that we can serve our kids a little better. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, Matthew, can you walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Sure. I started my career teaching elementary general music and choir, a job that I absolutely But after several years, I started to get frustrated with the sort of accidental acts of improvement uh, that I saw in my school and in my system. And so I left the classroom to pursue a larger school improvement journey. Um, I've worked in the nonprofit sector, I've worked in higher education, I've worked in state government, and through all those different settings, I have really learned that um, you know, school improvement and continuous improvement is all about thoughtful, careful decision-making, allowing evidence and data to drive your decision-making. And if we can embrace that uh, mentality, we can really change all of our schools. We can make good schools great and great schools even better. Beautiful. Let me ask you a follow-up question. I think... Uh... Uh, you said music teacher, right? I was, yeah. Like mus music teachers are uh, so important because they they teach students to use their brain different ways. Um, when, I'm assuming that when you start teaching music, um, perhaps like me, you were far away from from knowing how to understand and use data. What got you to that level where you perhaps realize? This is important to know so it can guide my instruction. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people ask me about the sort of balance between the art of teaching and the science of teaching. And because I'm an artist um, and was a music teacher, people often struggle to see where the two connect. Um, but for me, um, being a great music teacher and being a great musician is all about understanding the inner mechanics of the music that you're creating. Why do these two sounds work together? Um, and so there really is a lot of science and data even within music and the arts. Um, for me, the most pivotal turning point, um, frankly, I was struggling with a really uh, major problem of practice in my classroom related to my pencil sharpener. Uh, such a silly thing, but um, as a music teacher, I have 30 new kids every half an hour. My pencil sharpener just couldn't keep up. And so um, through a professional development one day, I learned about the value of using ink pen and teaching kids to write uh, sort of narrative and prose writing. And I said, hmm, I wonder if I could use ink pen in my music classroom, which is usually a big no-no. Um, yeah. I bought some cheap ink pens, and that changed my whole um, classroom management for that year. And that was really the first glimmer into this whole world of evidence-based decision-making. Beautiful. But uh, small things uh, make big changes. That's amazing. I'm, I'm always fascinated, uh, especially on how um, uh, future conductors are formed in schools. It's so important um, that, that we have a, a well-rounded view of the students. Um, Matthew, how do we get 
Uh, I see your tweets. Uh, by the way, it's like every time I see a tweet of yours, it's like, boom, that is the message, right? Like, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, what are you aspiring to do with with sharing those messages with educators like me? Yeah, I just want to really elevate our profession and help education transition into a fully evidence-informed field of, of practice and study. Um, I always like to compare us to the medical profession. And in the medical profession, every doctor is also a scientist. They have ethical and moral responsibilities to report on the unique things that they see, the unique solutions that they come up with. It's actually in the Code of Ethics document um, for the American Medical Association. And I would love to see education shifting into that direction where every educator is also an education scientist and is yes. openly sharing the problems that they have, the creative solutions that they come up with, and really taking ownership of the profession instead of allowing outside people, uh, folks not directly connected to the classroom, to be leading and doing that research and then telling educators what to do. Awesome. Amen. Thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate that. Um, like in Back to the Future, Matthew, if you could go back to any of the positions you have in the past, what would the Matthew of today tell the Matthew of back then? Um, I think the number one piece of advice I could give myself in the past is to just sort of calm down. Uh, in education, and this is true whether you're in the classroom, in the nonprofit sector, in higher ed, in state government, whatever level you're at, it just feels like drinking out of a fire hose. It's this constant onslaught of challenges and information and tasks and steps and meetings and emails. And um, it can be really overwhelming. It's, it can be a lot of pressure. But what I've learned over the years is that um, if you just kind of take things one thing at a time, uh, in the end, the important things get taken care of and the rest of it takes, sort of takes care of itself. So that would be the number one thing. Just kind of take a breath, step back, do good, solid work, and let the rest of sort of the noise just take care of itself. That's a great advice. Um, uh, we have uh, um, education systems that are like so pressured. Like I, I was reading um, uh, in Google News and, you know, since I click on education, so there's a lot of education throughout uh, particularly the United States. And, and we are we are in chaos in terms of um, uh, where to go, both students and parents with phones and their lack of attention. Uh, makes the job of the teacher more difficult. Um, uh, so advice is take a calm, uh, become an education scientist. Any any other suggestion for teachers today who are like, ah, what do I do? Tomorrow is Monday, I'm freaking out. Um, I think another good thing that teachers can do as we're on this path towards sort of self-actualizing as an evidence-based field is to build a habit of research consumption. Um, so really thinking critically about, have I read a research article this week? Research is written in its own sort of language, this weird language of academia, and it takes some practice and some getting used to. Um, so I think every educator should have a professional practice of reading the research that's relevant to them. I know that feels like one more thing added on, but to me, it's about working smarter, not harder. And yes. if we can find solutions to our problems in the evidence, then that's one less thing we have to worry about. Beautiful. How can school principals support teachers in that task? Is this something that I, because, you know, 
we can always send forwards and emails, but they, those are never well received, right? Because it sounds like, look, I know, and you don't read it. How can principals support that task so educators can be more informed in the relevant literature? Yeah, what we know from um, the research into research use, um, and as well from my own private practice and my own lived experience, there are two primary barriers to this. Um, the first barrier is time. Teachers don't have time to sit down and engage in meaningful conversations about research. They don't have time to sit down and read and consume research in a meaningful way. Um, one of the things that I like to coach principals in is um, what I call evidence-infused PLCs. And so thinking about how can we embed evidence use into our existing structure so that it doesn't feel like something extra, we provided protected time for that work to happen. The second barrier that we know that exists, especially for classroom teachers, is access to the research. And so thinking about when we're looking at our budgets, are there journals, are there databases that we could subscribe to that would really help our school and help our teachers have more access to the research that they need? All educators in the United States and around the world have access to the ERIC database, uh, which is funded and maintained by the U.S. Department of Education. Um, but it's not comprehensive. And so we need to be thinking about, can we increase access to teachers um, in other capacities through other uh, either research intermediaries or um, the databases that we could subscribe to to help, help them access the research directly. Beautiful, thank you. Great contributions. I, I can foresee that that's gonna happen at some point. It must happen, right? Because um, yes. we are going blindly to try to support students. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. Um, Matthew, uh, reading books is such a luxury. Um, if you had to gift two books to a loved one, one fiction and one nonfiction, which one would be those? So I think um, my nonfiction book of choice would be The Little Prince. Um, it's a book that most of us probably read at the end of elementary school. Uh, but for me, it's such a simple and powerful message of connection, community, um, and love and gratitude. Um, it's a book that I like to revisit often. Uh, in right now, the nonfiction world, right now I'm reading a book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, and this book is helping me think about equity in the classroom a little differently by helping me to understand the caste system um, that we have um, in um, India and some of those countries in the Middle East. Um, it's really helping me kind of think about equity and um, America's journey towards uh, racial equity in a different way and a new lens. And so I think it's been a very valuable read for me. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for sharing. Um, once you mentioned equity, right? For some, this is like, yeah, this is what we're working on. And for some, it's like, no, don't even say that. Um, what does this mean to you? Uh, and why is it so important in today's education world? Yeah, I think uh, equity is at the heart of the work that I do. It's, it's at the heart of school improvement. School improvement is about making sure that every single kid has access to a high quality education. And to me, that's what equity is too, making sure that every single kid has what they need in order to be successful. Um, we're in the middle of sort of a nationwide culture war right now. Uh, and it's, it's a shame to me that uh, we're so caught up in 
forms of culture and identity and, and battling against these things that we are really taking groups of kids and um, setting them aside because it's too much work, it's too much effort, it's too politically charged to work with this group of kids or that group of kids. Um, when I'm consulting on school improvement work or doing policy work, um, I do a lot of advocacy work for um, LGBTQI plus youth. Um, and this is a group of students who most schools um, around the country are just not ready to really talk about. Um, and it's a group of kids who are falling behind um, and have a lot of social, emotional, and societal risk that we're just missing as a field because it's, it's hard, it's controversial, uh, it's emotional, it's challenging. Um, but to me, it's the work that we have to do in order to have a better society and in order to make sure that every single kid has what they need to be successful in school. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. One, one follow-up question. Um, uh, we, we are seeing states that are saying, for example, oh, do not say gay, right? And we have states that uh, have given or have gone, uh, they are called woke, right? So you have uh, like extremes, like what would be a um, um, pragmatic way of, of, of supporting teachers who might not know how to best support uh, students uh, identifying the LGBTQ community? One of the things that we know from the research literature is that um, in, interracial uh, and multicultural conversations are difficult, but they work. And so um, what I would like to see are more leaders and systems and politics and communities really come together, bring people together for deep and difficult conversation. Um, right now, you see when you turn on the news or you show up to a school board meeting, a city council meeting, a legislative hearing, you see just a lot of shouting into microphones. Yeah. And that isn't moving the needle. That is just serving to further divide us um, as a nation and as a people. Um, I would like to see more people facilitating those deep, honest conversations, bringing people to the table to really expose um, each other to different ideas, but we all have to be open to that on those sides of the table. Um, so we've got a little ways to go, but to me, I think the more we can expose each other to different ideas, the more that we can try to be open-minded, um, the healthier we're going to be as a society. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Thank you so much. One more follow-up question. And these are all difficult questions, but you're a policy advisor and, and you, 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 you probably have a, a better way of perhaps solving this puzzle. There are some states where the, the influence against... Uh, equity, right? That doesn't mean that everybody is implementing equity in the best way, right? But there seems to be a movement where almost parents who might not be educators or, 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 or informing pedagogy or standards are basically saying, we want our children to learn this and we don't want them to learn that. Uh, how can school educators uh, basically say, hey, guys, you know, there's a curriculum to follow. There's standards. Please leave us teach. Uh, 
what is what is a way because it is getting ridiculous to the point where um in some school districts parents are basically checking in what they want their children to learn and which ones they don't Some serious systemic problems across the board. So I don't think this is a situation that's unique to education. I think it's a reflection of happening across the country in general. And we just see it in education because that's the world we live in, right? Um, but this is also why I'm so passionate about ensuring that every educator has the skills to become their own education scientist. Uh, because if we, you can stand on your own two feet, when you can defend a decision, when you can point to the evidence, whether it's evidence in the research literature, whether it's self-collected or evidence reflected in your own community, your own setting, your own classroom, I find that to be a very powerful and empowering experience for educators to be able to say, look, we made this decision. Here's why we made this decision. I also think as we are on this journey toward becoming a more evidence-informed profession, the more transparent we can be about that, the better off we're all going to be. So not only are we using evidence to make decisions, but we're sharing that evidence as we share it as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. So, uh, Matthew, um, is is not every day that I, I meet an educator who is also an artist. So I must ask, who is or who are your biggest influences? trying to do. Um, a few people come to mind. I always go back to my fourth grade teacher, Ms. Karen Cooper. Um, she's someone who has been very important to me throughout my career. We have stayed in touch as she has pursued other other positions and, and I have pursued other positions that have been fun to work both of our careers for We've both been able to work on some projects as well as physical. And so that has been a lot of fun in my career. Um, I think also experiences of the past, uh, political and public advocate who was really important to me, Sprint Hume, uh, who was a major LGBT advocate, uh, really one of the first major LGBT plus advocates in the United States. Uh, I also like to look at families uh, of the world, histories of those world families, because we learn a lot about leadership, but most of the leaders that we study are people who have chosen to be leaders. And so they've taken certain actions and certain steps to become who they are as a leader. Um, but when you look at royal families um, and, and those royal leaders throughout history, um, these are people who were born and handed a job. And so their formation is a little different. Their take on things is a little different. Um, and so I really enjoy kind of reading about unpicking um, decisions and processes from a variety of countries um, from the past. They're not always great examples, but we can learn even from bad examples. And and so um, that's a really powerful activity for me normally, really digging into those world families and the decisions that they've made. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Matthew, uh, as you know, um, at some point we all feel that we're not 
smart enough to do something or good enough or, or attractive or there's so many things that 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 psychology calls it imposter syndrome how do you address this and what advice do you have for those out there who who might be suffering from imposter syndrome more often than not that's a great question syndrome, to me, it's a symbol that I'm where I need to be. If I don't have imposter syndrome in a room, that, that tells me I've not pushed myself hard enough and hard to get into the room that I really need to be in. If I walk into a space and I have a little imposter syndrome, instead of shrinking back from that, I remind myself, this means I'm where I'm supposed to be. This means I've pushed myself into a next step and a next phase. And so I try to really embrace that. Uh, a big part of school improvement work and research work in general is embracing those feelings of discomfort and frustration, learning how to push through them. Um, that's a big part of my philosophy of work and life. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Do you ever, were you able, were you ever able to accomplish something and you were thinking just until the moment they told you, you got it, you thought you were not going to accept it or earn it? probably every major accomplishment that I've ever had uh, right before it's successful. I'm thinking, oh, do I need to keep going? Is this the right direction for me? Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, that feeling of discomfort um, can be a sign that you're really winning. Um, and if you can just keep pushing through that, I think you always end up on the better side. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Matthew. Matthew, let's talk about productivity. It is so important for everyone in any field to do the behind the stage work before you get in front of the stage. What does this mean to you? How do you get organized and still live a fructiferous life? Yeah, um, productivity is something I think a lot about. I work a full-time policy job. I also run a successful consulting practice. I write a blog. Um, so I, I'm always balancing many projects at the same time. Um, so a few things that help me, um, first, I really try to stay on top of my email and um, my inbox very rarely has uh, more than four or five messages in it. I treat mm -hmm. So message sits in my inbox until I've accomplished the task affiliated with it. And then it gets filed away. Um, that helps me kind of declutter my brain. Um, I also do a lot of basically everything I do is digital um, and I don't have a lot of paper around me. Um, and that helps me because I never know what resources I'm gonna need in a given space. Um, so from my phone, from my laptop, from my iPad, from whatever device I have, from your device, I can get on, I can find the resources that I need in order to be successful in that given moment. So that's something kind of eliminating paper that took me several years. Uh, I still have sticky notes, <laughs> I guess lots of those. Um, but beyond that, eliminating paper, that took several years to do, but that has really made me much more productive. And then the last thing I'll say is it's important to have hobbies and pastimes that allow you to disconnect. Uh, you can see here in the video behind me, I have this plant grow case and I uh, cultivate rare species of orchids and African violets. And that's something that for me is really rewarding because it's allowing me to bring some beauty into the world and to a world that often doesn't feel very beautiful. Um, but to care for them 
um, only takes a couple minutes a day. And so it's something that um, I always have time. I can always make time to water the flowers, to check the humidity in the cabinet, to air it out, to add more moisture, whatever I have to do to create the ideal growing environment for these plants. Uh, it's just a couple of minutes. And so it always, every day I've got that kind of space where I can reset even just two or three minutes um, and have a moment to myself. Beautiful. It's almost like um, uh, I have noticed with people who who have who cultivate or and maintain plants is it's almost like you have a a, a way of communicate with the plant when you treat it, when you see it, when you think about it. That's such a great hobby. What got you into that hobby? I got into this hobby um, really back in college. Uh, I have um, some issues with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was actually a therapist who recommended it. It's just sort of a calming activity. Uh, and like I said, it's become a calming activity for me now that I can touch in on every day. It's a, a safe spot to land, even for just a couple of minutes, knowing that they're there. Um, and they really represent for me uh, my own philosophy of, of life in general. Many of the things we've already talked about around you know, school improvement. Let's, let's extend the metaphor here. Um, you know, I can't control the environment around the school, but I can control the environment in the school. It's the same for my cabin. I can control the environment around it, but in the cabin, I can control the humidity. I can control the light. I can control the temperature. Um, I have to work really hard to maintain that balance all the time. Um, and there are setbacks, but those setbacks you have to push through. I just, I have one orchid right now that is one that I absolutely love, but um, it has experienced some root rot and only has two little tiny roots left on it um, after I kind of did some surgery to, to save it. And, you know, that that orchid is taking a lot of attention and a lot of focus, but I know that it's going to be okay. I know that I'm going to have a beautiful flower in probably a year um, after it has had a chance to grow and heal. Um, and that timeline, I think, is also so important. Because we live in this instant gratification society, and in, mm -hmm. in Squitter and School Improvement, whether it's my orchid cabinet, whatever it is in your life, we want it to happen right now. No. Best things take a long time. Um, so this serves for me as an ever-present reminder that, yeah, that orchid, it's in trouble right now. But a year from now, it's going to be beautiful again, and I just have to do the work and put the time in to get it there. Beautiful. What a great message, especially in a, in an area of TikTok that we just want a 20 second video that is funny, that is clear to understand, that is attractive. And if not, everything else is is not worth it. Thank you for sharing that. Let's let's go back to uh, um, the everything digital. I was imagining you in grad school doing your doctorate and organizing that dissertation. Um, what advice do you have for those that are in the process of beginning a doctoral program, perhaps a dissertation? At least for me, when I started, I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? Uh, what advice do you have? Well, I think first, that's a really normal feeling. And I wish more people had told me that, um, that feeling of overwhelm, it's really kind of part of the process, right? Um, and, and so... I think that's a, a piece of advice. A piece of advice that, that I was given early on that really helped me is that the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. And that once you're done, then you're Dr. Courtney and you can do whatever kind of research and writing you want for the rest of your career. 
And so that really helped me because I started with a dissertation project that was going to require several extra years of work. Mm. And, you know, an advisor pulled me aside and said, look, let's get a dissertation topic that you can finish a little faster, save you some money, save you some time, and then you can work the rest of your career on these big projects. And um, that I, I found to be really good advice. Uh, it saved me a lot of money, a lot of time um, to get that project done. Of course, I'm in a practitioner space, not in a university mm-hmm. space, right? So that might not be great advice for somebody who wants to teach and be a tenured track professor. That the dissertation plays a different role um, Correct. in kind of that, that pathway. But in that practitioner pathway, the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, so um you said that you do everything uh, or you tend to do digitally i wonder what software if any did you use to store all your um research and uh what software if any did you use to do the actual dissertation so these days um i'm using a lot of google platform uh, google cloud it's just and google drive it's just really convenient um, and accessible and where many educators um, have transitioned to Google platforms during COVID. It's, it, I find that um, it helps me communicate a little better with schools. Um, I also use my iPad a lot. Uh, that has been a tool that uh, has really saved me a lot over the years because I can read those articles, I can download and store those and, and have those, I can annotate right on them as if they were paper. So that has really helped me a lot. Uh, I will probably have some form of iPad device the rest of my career. Good, good. So you take notes um, as you read in an iPad, like like on the size and underline and kind of stuff. Wow, what? I never thought about it. That's quite an interesting thing. So and you can keep and see those notes, those notes that you go by. That's beautiful. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, it's exactly like when I was in grad school, I hadn't moved digital yet. And so I used to print articles out and highlight uh, them. Um, so it's exactly the same process, except now it's on my iPad. Um, and that also means that I can access them on my desktop. I can log in and access them on your desktop and find my notes again. So mm. for me, that's a, a major time saver. Um, and I travel a lot. So being able to grab my iPad and read on an airplane or a train or a subway or whatever, that helps me a lot. Saves me a lot of time. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And um, you said you write a blog. Did I get that right? I do write a blog. It's called Beyond the Mean. And it's all about um, helping educators push beyond the mean as they analyze data and use research. We get really focused in education on the average. And um, the average or the the mean has a role to play, but there's a whole array of descriptive and inferential statistics that are not difficult to master. But if we can take the time to learn them, we can really um, mine information out of our data much more efficiently and make better informed decisions. I see. The blog as well. Definitely. And when you write, do you do you have a routine? I write every day at this time, or do you go by inspiration? Like. How do you, do you have writer's block? Uh, what is your journey uh, with uh, uh, maintaining a blog? Yeah, so I mean, I'm a continuous improvement guy, so I use continuous improvement tools. I use mm. 60, 90 day planning cycles to help me plan out what my blog or other content for that period is going to look like and how I'm going to achieve that. 
I also use Plan Do Study App Cycles to monitor the content on my website and how it's interacted with. My website has lots of content. It's got, in addition to the blog, it's got video tutorials and online courses and ebooks you can download and read. Um, data analysis tools, we can upload a spreadsheet that will do all the analysis for you. And so once a month, I pull all that data um, out of my, certainly you know, the back end of my website, and I do a plan to study act cycle, and I take a look at that, I learn from that data, and that informs my next steps. Um, so I really do use those continuous improvement tools, um, just like I help schools to use them, uh, institutions, nonprofits to use them. Um, I use them in my own life or my own business. Wow, thank you. That's a, a great way, a neat way to, to, to have this organized so you don't have to focus in, in whenever inspiration arrives. Uh, the controversial question, of course, now is uh, ChatGPT is here to stay. Um, what advice do you have for schools in supporting students that perhaps to see this as a tool rather than a replacement of their learning? Yeah, I really am having fun with ChatGTP. I think one of the best things that you can do is start by playing with it. If many educators have opinions on it and that's say, have you clicked on it, have you used it? And then they have it. So go in and play with it and get to know what it can and can't do. And I think if your assignments, um, the, you know, the big concern is kids are going to use this to complete assignments, to um, find answers for tests, to even draft um, essay responses. And one of the things that I found about this tool is that it's obviously not a critical thinker, right? It's um, what it does is it pulls information together and it puts out accurate information. If that's the kind of assignment that you're giving, you're not really giving a very rigorous assignment. Um, if you're asking kids to just regurgitate information, that's what ChatGPT does. Um, but what we need to be thinking about is how can we use this as a tool? I think it's here to stay. I think. 15 years from now, 10 years from now, um, we'll all be using it instead of Google. Instead of searching for a, a, a topic, we'll just ask a question and it'll give us the answer. So how can you design assignments that are more rigorous, that involve more thought, more performance, more application? Um, I think that's going to be the difference. And really, that's what great education is all about anyway, right? And, and there's lots of movements across the country to shift us to project-based learning. Um, sort of deep learning in general, really applying and critically thinking about the content. Um, and I think that this uh, really interesting AI tool is going to help us get there a little faster. I think it's going to force our hand and make us get there. So I'm excited about it. Beautiful. That should be your next blog, right? To to illuminate educators, right? Because um, um, it's so easy to think immediately, oh, no, bad, 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 bad. But it's here to stay, and we might as well um, uh, find learning and using it as a tool. Sure. Thank you, Matthew, so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. Any last thoughts with the listeners of the show? Well, I would love to connect with your listeners and, um, and bring them into my network. So if there's anything I can do for you, um, the best way to get me is through my website, www.matthewbcourtney.com. Um, you'll find my blog there, all my tools there, and my contact information. Um, you can also follow me on social media. All that information is on the website. Uh, I love to connect and really help educators solve their problems in real time. Um, so please reach out um, and let me be a partner in your own learning journey as you improve teaching and learning conditions for all kids. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Matthew. Uh, this has been great. 
Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your productivity. Uh, I can't wait to share this with the world. Have a great Sunday. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparin Martinez. Chulu. And Ella's Dot Production. Chulu out.